who stuck around last week uh, for decorating, uh, especially everybody helped with the, with the tree and uh, getting everything up. Man, I, I love this time of year. I love how beautiful our church looks uh, when we put up the Christmas decorations. So thank you for everybody who stuck around, uh, hung out, and helped make that uh, happen. So uh, let's pray, and then we can, yeah, yay, everybody's helpful. Thank you, Dave. Uh, all right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this chance to gather, to enjoy you, to celebrate you. We thank you for this season in the calendar that is built as a time for us to focus our eyes in a world, uh, in an era where we are constantly distracted, constantly getting our attention pulled one way or the other. There is this time, this season built into our calendars, built into life that says, this is what I want you to focus on. I want you to focus on what God has done for us in, in sending his son to die for us, in sending his son into the world that he created. And so we have this season of anticipation, this season of waiting, this season of longing. And God, as we wait and we long for Christ to return, we pray that you will help us do that well to wait well, to wait expectantly, to wait actively, and to wait in such a way that we shine brightly as the lights of the world you have made us to be. Lord, as I open the word this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So uh, you've heard me use the word Advent a couple of times already this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 1, by the way, if I didn't say that already. Matthew 1, so if you want to grab your Bibles, there should be, uh, if there's a seatback Bible, it should have a bookmark that gets you to Matthew 1. We're going to be in Matthew 1 this morning. Um, you've heard me use the word Advent a couple of times this morning. If you did not grow up in church or grow up around Advent, this was not something that was really part of my growing up. I didn't really learn about this season um, and the history of it until later on, until probably until college. And so uh, this word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming. It has been used as a time to celebrate the arrival of Jesus on earth. And usually in, in past times, it would be a preparation time for new baptisms in the church that would happen in January. New year, new life, so they would step in into baptism. And so Advent was used as a time to prepare people's hearts, teaching, training, um, and getting ready for baptism. Over time, the, the focus of the season has changed slightly, and we, but we still remember and identify and celebrate Christ's arrival. But now, for us, we do so and we wait, anticipating his second coming. And so Advent helps us to identify with those believers who originally waited for the Messiah, like Messiah, like how we wait now. For the Jewish people, for God's people throughout all time, longing, waiting for that Messiah. We have this way to tie ourselves to them. As they waited and longed for the Messiah, so too we wait and long for Christ to return. I said earlier, one of the traditions that has been a part of Advent throughout all of, uh, all of its inception really has been the wreath and the candles. The wreath is made up of evergreen branches, reminding us of the everlasting God that we serve, even in the midst of a cold and wintry and wet season, our God is faithful. And the candles, again, Jesus is the light of the world. His coming brings light into the darkness. And so each candle represents different themes attached to it. Hope, peace, joy, and love. What Jesus brings with him in the incarnation. Um, Matt, if you want to come up and help me out. Ooh, grab a chair. Thank you. Uh, I want you to just, <laughs> no, not for me. Uh, I want you to take that and I just want you to hold it over your head. You got this, man. Yep, that's good. Cool. Just hang out for a minute. Um, 
Waiting isn't easy. But it's worth it. Everyone knows what it's like to wait for something. Waiting can be uncomfortable sometimes. We are in a season of waiting. Waiting for something. Waiting for someone. That's what Advent is. While the world While the word means coming, we are waiting, we are anticipating, actively longing for something, for someone to show up. For the Israelites, they waited for the Messiah. They waited on the promise of God for the one who would send, for the one who would come as a deliverer. One who would restore order and peace, one who could change everything. This anticipation, this desire was not just an idea for them. It wasn't just a theology. It wasn't just a concept. It affected their day-to-day lives. The anticipation of the Messiah, of one who could change their very core, had them on alert, always ready, always anticipating. They cried out for it. We see it in Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and what the, ma- and what the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. How you doing? We're in a new season of waiting. We wait on Christ's return. But rather than waiting and kicking our feet up, just trying to kill time until Christ returns, we do so actively. We wait. And as we do, we wait actively, pursuing God more, communing with him more, to know him more, to to know his character more and more. You good? You can play that. You can have a seat. Thank you, Yeah, you can come on. He did a good job. Today we start a new series looking at and considering this idea of waiting. But more than that, I want to talk about a word in this series. It's a word in the Bible that doesn't get used much these days. It's a word that you probably don't pay much attention to. The word is behold. In the Greek, it's edu. There you go, you know some Greek. This word, behold, it means see, behold. In old translations, lo. It's a demonstrative. It's jarring. It is designed to slow you down, to focus on what is happening. It's almost an interruption in what's going on. But by its nature, it's also an imperative. See this thing. Behold that event. Lo, them. I don't know how to use low. It's a demonstrative imperative. I don't know if that's a real thing or not. Our English officials are upstairs in Grace Place, so I'm going to make up a new English phrase. It's a demonstrative imperative. It means stop and pay attention to what's being said and to what's happening. It's an imperative that I believe is imperative that we heed. Because during this season, we got stuff to do. We have presents to buy, things to make, parties to throw, carols to sing. We hustle and run and go, and we feel like we can't take a breath or relax or enjoy the moment until maybe December 26th when we finally realize everything has passed us by. Behold, God is at work. Behold, God is at work in and through you now. Behold, 
hold the season you are in. Stop. Slow down and see what is happening around you. So we're going to jump into Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mary is betrothed to Joseph and is already with child from the Holy Spirit. Mary, historians say Mary is probably between 12 and 14 years old. She's from a small town of Nazareth at the time, maybe 400 people. She's betrothed to Joseph. Betrothed is something like our engagement, but actually a little more binding. It's basically marriage at that point. An official divorce would need to be, uh, would need to be um, brought upon to actually break the relationship. It was a serious covenant, not only between the two people involved, but between their families. The way it worked is that the groom would pay what's known as a mohawk. It's an amount to compensate the bride's family for wages lost from, the, from her no longer being part of the family. So whether or not she was part of whatever family business was going on, or even just her being part of the home so that others could work, the idea that her being removed from the family unit would cause a loss. And so the mohar was paid to kind of offset that. Once that was done, at that point, they're basically married. A few vows would be made but they would stay separated from each other for about a year. The, the groom would go to prepare living arrangements, usually building an extension onto his father's house. After about a year, there would be uh, a wedding feast, a celebration that would happen. More vows, the official vows would be taken, and the two would consummate their marriage. But there's a problem. Before they come together, she was found to be, child, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Before they were able to, able to have sex, it was found that Mary was pregnant. Sometime in this year, things got real complicated. And we don't know when Mary told Joseph or how long he anguished over what to do. We don't know how that conversation goes, how you broach that subject. This was probably an arranged marriage by their family, so the two of them didn't know each other very well. And what she is telling him is that she has been made pregnant through the power of the Spirit of God. Man, that's a tough one to believe. How in the world is he going to trust that? And if he doesn't, if he doesn't believe what she tells him, he will probably end the relationship, which could leave her alone to raise this boy. In worst case scenario, Joseph would not only break off the relationship, but Mary would be, by law, stoned to death. I want to talk about Joseph for a little bit, because Joseph, I feel like, is kind of the forgotten man of Christmas. Partially because he never actually speaks. We never actually get any words from him. We don't really know much about him. We know he's from Nazareth, tiny town, and we know he's a carpenter, right? That, that's about all we got. But we also know he's from the line of David. He's a descendant of King David. And there's one more piece of information there in verse 19 about Joseph that sometimes I think gets overlooked. Look at verse 19. It says, And her, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her. Quietly. 
Joseph was a just man. Some translations say good man or righteous man. That word means upright, virtuous, keeping the commandments of the law, innocent in the eyes of the law. He was known for keeping Jewish law. He was respected. You weren't going to see him break the Sabbath or sneak a ham sandwich. So much of the Old Testament law revolved around daily life and how you carried yourself day to day, what you ate, what you wore, how you spent your time, which means Joseph had a reputation as a just man, a righteous man. It was known. Again, it's a small town. Nazareth is 400 people. So people knew the carpenter. Yeah, he's a good man. He's a just man. He keeps the law. It was an identity that was the goal and aspiration of every Jewish person to be known as a just person. And Joseph had done it. Being a righteous man was part of his identity, who he was just as much as anything else about him. And that identity, that reputation would be put at risk due to Mary's pregnancy. The just man is promised to marry a woman who is pregnant. And the only thing Joseph is sure of is that he's not caught. Now, I said the the law is pretty clear about what to do in this situation. In Deuteronomy 22, it says, If a woman is unfaithful, she is to be publicly stoned. This just man has a situation on his hands. If he sticks to the law, which has dominated and directed and he has dedicated his life to, this woman and baby will die. But because he is a just man dedicated to the law and thus dedicated to God, there is a part of him that has an issue with that being the end result. He decides this situation is too hard and messy to deal with, so he chooses to divorce her quietly. He wants to protect her and her reputation. He can try and minimize the backlash on her and still adhere to the law and his identity as a just man. He would have a bill of divorce written up, probably two or three family members as witnesses, instead of publicly suing the family to try and recover the mohar that he had already spent. Because if he did that, it would put Mary to shame and, again, possible death. But we see in verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not, take, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. As he wrestled with this situation and what to do, behold, stop, see, pay attention to how this plays out. Because it wasn't Joseph's wisdom or his uprightness that fixes this. It wasn't his desire to be a good guy or a nice guy. God steps in and moves here. Joseph has made up his mind about what to do and how he is going to get out of this and step away. But again, if he does that, what happens? Even being the just man that he is and gives her a quiet divorce, best case scenario, this 12 or 13-year-old girl has to now raise a baby by herself with no help from anyone. Maybe her family takes her in. Maybe she gets to be part of the family unit again. But to do that, she's going to have to try and convince them that this baby isn't from adultery, which is going to be hard for them to believe, right? Chances are they reject her. She's now alone. She's going to be an outcast from all of society. What are the odds of her and this baby surviving? Where do they, how do they eat? Where do, where do they live? And again, that's, that's the best case scenario. 
And we've already covered the worst case scenario. Mary was stoned to death publicly. She and the baby both died. See, Joseph thought he was just caught in this messy situation. He didn't realize that the decision that was before him would have an impact on all of humanity throughout all of time. Because if Joseph walks away, if Joseph bails on this, it is very possible that either Jesus doesn't get born, or if he does, he doesn't survive very long, and all of humanity is condemned to hell. And that's why Jesus came to save us, it says in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is not the first time God's plan for salvation to save humanity seemed to be hanging on by a thread. This is not the first time nor the last. Behold, see this, that what God has appointed to happen is going to happen. He makes a way where there is no way. He steps in. God's plans will not be thwarted. And we know it is the desire of God to save all people. He said, it says as much in 1 Timothy 2, 3. This is, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants all people to know him. And the only way salvation is possible is through the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So behold, an angel shows up. Joseph, change your mind. Joseph, you are part of something bigger than yourself, bigger than Mary, bigger than the situation. You need to trust this message. Why did God wait? Why doesn't the angel show up to Joseph and Mary together, right? You know from Luke's account that Mary gets this one-on-one -on -one interaction with the angel where she finds out that she is pregnant. Why didn't God wait and send an angel when Joseph and Mary were together? Why does Joseph have to wait? Why does, he, why does God let him anguish? And then only after he has decided to divorce her, that's when God steps in. I believe Joseph needed to wrestle with this situation. He needed to wrestle with what it meant to, what it, what it meant to pursue the law versus showing compassion to Mary. He needed to learn what does it really mean to be just and righteous. Because sometimes we can only learn certain situations, certain lessons, if we are in certain tough situations. Joseph had to come to terms with the fact that if he went forward with marrying Mary, his friends, his family, his town, everyone would think of him differently. Because it's a lot easier to believe Mary cheated on Joseph. Or maybe her and Joseph took things too far one night before they were actually married. Either way, it's a lot easier to believe one of those things than to believe that she is pregnant by the work of the Holy Spirit. People are going to talk and judge and question and assume the worst. That righteous man identity would go away. If Joseph were to commit to this girl and this baby, he'd be sacrificing his reputation he had earned throughout his life. But in doing so, he would show what it really means to glorify the Lord through the way you live. And so the angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Again, he didn't even get the face-to-face -face encounter with him that Mary got. He receives a message in a dream, which it could be very easy to wake up from and just write it off as a dream. Right? I had a dream. I had a dream twice in this past week that I was working at my old job uh, out in Vernon Hills. That doesn't mean I need to go back and work at the pool. I can just say it was a dream and move on. But Joseph didn't wake up from this dream and just ignore it. He didn't just chalk it up to having some spicy food one night. 
No, it says, look at what he does in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph wakes from his sleep, and he does as the angel of the Lord commanded him. There's an immediate response from Joseph, an immediate obedience. He was willing to risk his reputation, his relationships, to do what God was telling him to do. Behold, God's plan will not be stopped, which means we can trust what he tells us. We can confidently step into those moments, those situations when the Holy Spirit tells us to go, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Because we're not going to be the ones to ruin anything. We are not going to be the ones to screw up God's eternal plan for humanity. God is in control of all things at all times. So when you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, when you have the opportunity to invite somebody to church, to share what you believe, to try and answer your kids' questions about heaven and hell, to shine your light brightly that others may know and believe God, know and believe God. When these moments, when these opportunities show up, we don't have to cower and fear them. We can see them for what they are, God's divine appointments that he has provided for us to step into. And we can do so confidently knowing that we aren't going to be the ones to screw up God's plan. God's plans will never be thwarted. And so we can go into whatever and wherever he wants us to and know he is in control of all things at all times. Now, as we read, and, and I read the, those last couple of verses here, we see that this behold in regards to the, the angel showing up isn't the only behold in this passage. In verse 23, it's quoting the prophet Isaiah. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. What's happening here is the fulfillment of a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus ever shows up. Isaiah 7:14, which basically says the same thing. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This was the prophet speaking on behalf of God to Ahaz, the king at the time, who was looking for a reason to avoid believing and trusting in God. He was trying to find a way to escape having to be humble and trust in the power of a force outside of himself. And this is not the first or only prophecy made in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. The Old Testament is full of different glimpses, different images, these snapshots of what to look for, what to pay attention to in regards to the Messiah. God made a promise on that day in the garden when Adam and Eve bit into that fruit in Genesis 3, that there would be one who would go to war with Satan. And throughout history, God kept giving the Israelites these glimpses and moments, saying, this is what to look for. Pay attention. I haven't forgotten you. Here's what's coming for you. God prom God's promise begins with Adam and Eve, and it gets extended to Abraham. He tells Abraham that through him and through his offspring, that his offspring, the world would be blessed. Abraham ends up having a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob would go on and be renamed by God with the name Israel. Jacob ends up having 12 sons whose families and descendants would make up the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. As Jacob is getting ready to die, he's blessing and, and speaking to his sons and blessing each one of them. 
In Genesis 49, verse 8, it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jacob gives this blessing. Israel gives this blessing to his son Judah and tells him, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Eternally, the one who will reign and rule, this Messiah that they are longing for, will be a descendant of Judah. He will come from the family line of Judah. And a few generations later, there's a man named Jesse. Isaiah 11 tells us that the chosen one, this Messiah that is coming, would be the branch from the stump of Jesse that will bear much fruit, who will have much impact in the world. And one of Jesse's sons, he's the warrior poet. He's the giant-slaying, bare-handed, bare-fighting shepherd boy, David. The man who would unite the nation of Israel. Israel's second greatest king, second only to the king of kings, Jesus himself. David would lead and love and serve his people. He doesn't do it perfectly, but he leads with a heart after God's own heart. And as David is getting older, as he is getting ready to pass on, God promises David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This Messiah, his lineage would be tied to David because David's lineage would have the throne forever. So we know that this promise, this offspring will come through the line of Abraham. It will be a blessing to the world. We know it will come through the line of Judah be a descendant of David. And the promises don't end there. God went so far as to give the geography of how this was going to go down. In Micah 5.2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So God throughout history is giving, this, giving these clues, giving these glimpses, and saying, here's the bloodline to pay attention to. And if that's not enough, I'll give you the town, tiny little Bethlehem. And if that's still not enough, we have this promise, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin will give birth. Jesus is born. And he is the descendant of Abraham. He is the branch from the stump of Jesse. He is a descendant of David. He is from the tribe of Judah. In fact, he is that lion of Judah. Born in Bethlehem, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth thy everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And that night, 
baby boy cries while lying in a manger and the entire world is changed. Behold, God did an amazing thing. See, God did a miraculous thing. God made a promise and behold, that promise was made and kept by God to his creation. The Messiah came into the world that we might have a new life. There's two important things about this promise that God made. One is that it was made and fulfilled. Jesus is that offspring. He is the branch from the stump of Jesse. He is from the tribe of Judah. He is the descendant of David, the greater prophet than Moses. And like Moses, he leads his people out of slavery. He's the greater leader than Joshua ever could be, the greater king than David, not just a shepherd, but the good shepherd, the one born in Bethlehem, the product of the virgin birth. He is the one, the one who would come to save his people. And because of that, because of all of those things and so much more, he, as it says in Revelation, he alone is worthy, worthy to reign, worthy to rule. He alone is worthy to go to the cross for us in our place and die for our sins. It happened. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to earth. He fulfills the promise. It took 42 generations from promise to fulfillment. The people waited and longed for it and cried out for it, and God kept his promise. When we were helpless and hopeless, condemned to eternity separated from God, never fulfilled, never complete, always searching, always lacking, forever in turmoil, God stepped in. He made a way so that anyone who would admit their sins and admit their need for a Savior and believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth to die on the cross for our sins and choose for him to be your Savior and King. For anyone who would do that, they have a new life, a full life, real life, complete life, here, now, and forevermore. God made a promise, and God fulfilled that promise. Matt, I'm going to call you back up here one more time. You don't need to bring the chair. Can you hold that over your head, please? Can you hold that over? It's going to work. course he could do that. We knew he was going to be able to do that. That's an easy task. But we also knew he could do that because we saw him do a much harder task just a little while ago. God did an amazing thing, a miraculous, huge thing. God kept the biggest promise of them all to send a Savior to go to the cross for our sins, to defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave. He did that for us. He fulfilled that promise. And because God fulfilled his promise, the big promise, because he did the big thing, the hard thing, the biggest thing, the hardest thing, that means we can trust that he can do anything and everything else. It means that we can trust every other promise he makes. It means when he makes a promise like Matthew 28, 20, and says, I am with you always to the end of the age, we know he will keep that promise and be with us. 
But when he makes a promise like Luke 11, 9 and 10, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. We know he will keep his promise to answer and to show up and to provide. When he promises to strengthen us and help us and to uphold us with his righteous right hand, we know he will. When he promises to grant us peace, a peace that surpasses this world and surpasses all understanding, his peace, we know he will. When he promises that he will give rest to the weary and heavy laden, we know he will. We know he will do these things because he's already proven he is able. He's already proven that he is trustworthy. He's already proven that he is worthy. Behold, God's plans will never be thwarted. And so we can go into whatever and whenever he tells us and wants us to do that and know that he is in control of all things at all times. And behold, God keeps his promises, all of them, always, forever. Behold, the promise of God fulfilled. As the angels told the shepherds, for unto you is born in this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you that you are trustworthy. That whatever you say, you will do. That there's promise after promise that we can trust, that we can hold on to and cling to and believe. That as the world tries to sell us fake and phony lies, that you give us as truth and real. Your word is not going anywhere. It will not fade. It will not falter. As we live in a world that is perpetually decaying, there is truth and structure and stability found in you. God, help us to remember that. Help us to remember who you are, that you're trustworthy and good, that when it doesn't make sense, when it's hard and messy, when we're overwhelmed and confused, remind us who you are. You've been doing it over and over again. You will continue to do it because you know we need it. God, we ask that you would continue to remind us how awesome, how good, how righteous and pure, just, kind, merciful you are. You made a promise that you were going to fix what we had broken. You were going to make a way where there was no way. You were going to take care of what we couldn't do on our own. And you did. You sent your son so that he could grow up, so that he could go to the cross, so that he could pay for our sins, so that we could have a right relationship with you, so that we could live forever in your presence, so that we could be adopted into your family, so that we could be your sons and daughters so that we can live on this earth with a purpose, enjoying the fullness of life and live in such a way that glorifies you and makes much of you so that others might come to know you. God, help us as we 
entering into this Advent season, as we enter into this time of hustle and bustle, help us to be whole. Help us to stop and slow down and see what you are doing because we know you're always at work. God, in those places and those moments where you call us to take a step, give us the boldness and the courage and the humility to take a step and trust in your control and trust in your goodness. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen.